episode 88 of Off Script with Trish Close, intimate interviews and fun conversations with interesting people. In front of my microphone today, I have Mark Huddleston. Hello, sir. Hello, Trish. Former Jackson County District Attorney. Mm-hmm. How long were you DA? I was the DA for 20 years in the office for years. 32. Whoa, that's including. Including the 20, yeah. <laughs> Making you older than you are. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's really my only job, except for working on a catfish farm for mm-hmm. a couple of years. Ooh, okay. <clears throat> I'm talking about that catfish farm. Uh, we we record these, as some people know, in our new station, KTVL's new station, which is the Mail Tribune building. The Daily Planet. That's what you said when you walked in. Mm-hmm. That's what it used to be called? Or is oh, that a, it was kind of an unofficial a, name. A it's joke. a white... White building, gorgeous, gorgeous design, mm-hmm. designed by my friend Bruce Abelo. Mm-hmm. But yeah, kind of looks like if you ever watch the original Superman show on TV, kind of looks like what you'd think of for the Daily Planet oh, where Superman worked. Oh, okay. It's all coming together now. Yes. So I could be Lois Lane, essentially. That's that's right. All right. And I already have my Superman, so done. You're good. I'm good. I'm good to go. I love that. Um, there's been some other names for the paper that is produced here a long time ago. We won't say that. Some names that have been called that I've heard on radio stations that they didn't really like the paper. Uh-huh. What, I mean, you say that for most newspapers, right? If you don't like the paper, you, what do you call it, like fish wrap or something? Oh, well, sure. Yeah. But that's Mail like Tribune, I mean, I think I've heard reporters at the paper called it like the Muddy Turtle and mm. other MT-type names. But oh, okay. It's a, it's a great paper. Well, We're fortunate to have it here. Very fortunate mm. to have it here and very fortunate to have this partnership. I've been learning a lot in the last few months. Mm-hmm. Okay, Mr. Former DA, we're going to talk a lot about DA stuff and lawyer nerdy stuff. We're going to get real nerdy today. Uh, first of all, sir, where are you from originally? Well, I was born in Chicago. I lived there until I was 11, and then we moved to New Jersey for uh, work for my dad. Okay. What did dad do? He worked, uh, he had a number of different jobs. He, we moved to New Jersey uh, for him to work with RCA. He was kind of an electronics hmm. kind of guy. He did that for a while, uh, but he, his longest stint was with the Bud Company in uh, Philadelphia. We lived in Jersey just along the, the border with North Philly. And uh, Bud Company at that point was making high-speed rail cars. So he would go in and do the electrical testing and checking. Wow, smarty pants. Mm. Very smart. What did mom do? Well, she had a degree in social work, and she did that for just a couple of years. And then when, maybe even before I was born and after my sister was born, she stayed home and raised us. Mm. And then uh, she went into teaching, and she ended up doing primary school teaching for 15, 20 years, maybe. Wow. Mm-hmm. So long-time teacher. How old's your sister? She is just three years younger than I, and okay. I just turned 70. Okay. You're the oldest. Yep. Says a lot about you, Mark Huddleston. So you're East mm-hmm. Coast kid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah? Um, what was it like growing up in Chicago? I mean, you were only there for yeah. You a know, decade. I was eleven when I left, so I didn't. You know, I didn't hang around downtown by myself too much. So <laughs> you didn't. I didn't. Uh, no, are you a Cubs fan? A Cubs fan? No, I'm a Phillies fan because that's where I kind of grew up. Yeah. Okay. And it's been hard to be a Phillies fan over the years, but mm. uh, especially recently. But. But a try. true fan mm-hmm. loves their team. That's true. Win, lose, yep. whatever. I mean, that's just that's just how it goes if you're a fan. How yep. long were you in Philly? 
Uh, or, well, yeah, uh, North or South Jersey. So uh, until I went to college, so oh. and, and I went to college in '67 through '71. I went to school in New Jersey too at the state school there, Rutgers University. So mm-hmm. it wasn't until after I finished college that I really left left the state. Okay, so you grew up in this part of the country. Like, uh, what is that, Six early 60s? Mm-hmm. What was that like? I mean, this is a big, big city. Uh, well, not really in New Jersey where I lived. Okay. I, it was, uh, it's, it's interesting, actually, because it's, uh, the town is uh, Willingboro. It's about mm-hmm. 50,000 people, I think, now, maybe 45,000. But uh, it started off life as a Levitt town. And I don't know if you've ever heard of Levittowns. Levittowns, no. There's one in Pennsylvania, there's one in Long Island, and then there was this one in New Jersey. And they're just whole communities built out of farmer's fields, like the one in uh, in New Jersey was built in peach orchards. They basically mowed mm-hmm. down acres and acres of peach orchards and just built a development there out of, out of thin air. They built uh, individual parks. Every street in Millbrook Park, where I live, started with an M. If you were in Pennypacker, they all started with a P. They had like seven styles of houses, two colonials, two ranchers, mm-hmm. a Cape Cod, and something else. They had seven different colors, and they would just cookie-cutter them down the street. So yeah. it was like so easy to get confused about where you were there. Oh, I'm sure. Uh, and they same kind of thing in New York, same kind of thing in Pennsylvania. They changed the name in New Jersey because they got tired of their mail going to the other two states, mm-hmm. another Levittown. So they went back to a, historically, I guess there was a Willingboro there, you know, 200 years ago, maybe 150 years ago. Okay, so you're growing up in a fairly small town then. Yeah, yeah, medium sized medium, okay. town, yeah, right. Okay. But close to close to Philly for okay. sure. Yeah. Uh, what were you like in high school? What was I like? <laughs> um, oh, I was moderately studious, I guess. Mm-hmm. I wasn't particularly athletic. Um, was in the high school band for maybe yeah, probably all four years. What'd you play? Clarinet. Nice. Still have the clarinet somewhere up really? somewhere up in the attic. <laughs> Haven't played it for years. Isn't but. it funny the things we hold on to? I'm waiting for it to increase in value, but I may <laughs> be waiting a long time. You may be waiting yeah. a long time. Mm-hmm. I've mentioned this a couple of times on this podcast. My friend Jeff mm-hmm. Shepard, who owns Lily Bell Chocolates, okay, total deadhead, mm-hmm. and he started collecting bootlegs, dead Grateful Dead bootlegs right. from people who, right. mostly men, from their wives going, get that out mm-hmm. of the attic. Mm-hmm. And he's basically put it out there in the universe that I'll take your bootlegs. Yeah. And he has a library now of bootlegs. So wow. it's just, it's funny to me because I have, I have probably a box of notes that I wrote in middle school. Mm-hmm. I don't even know what they mean anymore. I don't know who they were to or who they're from, but you have, we hang on to stuff. Yeah. For, for silly reasons. Yeah. For silly reasons. We're all yeah. kind of pack rats that way. I had a bunch of, uh, Marvel comics from back in the day that mm. had I hung on to them longer than I did, probably would have been worth a lot more money than I yeah. got for them when I did sell them. That's true. My husband had records. Uh-huh. Remember those? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Vinyl. Yeah. <laughs> uh, some some good ones. Some mm-hmm. old like, uh, what was it? The Sun Sessions. I think Elvis used to do it. That that mm-hmm. the first sessions right. of of Elvis Presley. Some of right. those on vinyl. I think he had, nice. and he doesn't have them anymore. Yeah. It's kind of sad, but you just think like cassette tapes. Uh, do you have a? Ca- I mean, I don't have cassette tapes anymore because no. No. CDs came out. Pfft, 
Yeah, we don't even have a VCR player at home anymore. No. So, yeah. I think I had one in my trunk up until like a few months ago. Mm-hmm. I was finally like, it's time to get rid of it. Yeah. Goodwill's not going to take this VCR. <laughs> Everything is digital these days. Um, did you know in high school your path or were you? Oh, no. 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 Okay. Well, no, not correctly anyway. I okay, mean, I had, I had some ideas. When I went to college as an undergraduate, I wanted to be Jacques Cousteau. You remember Jacques Cousteau? I do. You know, Aqualung, uh-huh. looking at pretty fish and uh-huh. stuff underwater. Like a marine biologist Yeah, like type? that. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Um, and that's kind of, that was that was really the degree that I ended up with as an undergraduate. But unfortunately, my grades in, oh, physics, chemistry, mm. even biology were kind of like not very good at all. Need those just a little. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. if you're going to be a marine biologist, yeah. you should be good at that stuff. So... Um, <laughs> I applied to one uh, grad school, but they correctly said, no, you, we're not accepting you as a, as a person in the sciences. So mm-hmm. uh, didn't have a lot going on at that point. Um, so I ended up uh, going into the Peace Corps for a couple really? of years. Yeah. Okay. Explain, because I know a little bit about the Peace Corps, but explain how it works. Essentially, you... You go somewhere and, and do some do some stuff. Right. That's exactly it. Those are the two choices. Where are you going to go, and what are you going to do when you get there? Okay. And so my idea was, well, I can't get into grad school, but I still want to be a fisheries something or other. Mm-hmm. So I'll go into this Peace Corps program that works with fish. Mm-hmm. And uh, it actually was an excellent choice, not for my career, but for my uh, two years in the Peace Corps. Hmm. Uh, because I ended up in Cameroon, West Africa, which is right next to Nigeria there on the west side of the continent. And I was in a program that the local folks really liked and appreciated, which wasn't true for all Peace Corps programs. They'd had uh, inland fisheries there. Since the British were there, they were the original uh, country that uh, made a colony of uh, Cameroon. French too on the on the larger part of the country it ended up getting consolidated when they were independent but it was a popular program so you didn't have to go trying to look for something to do people were always knocking on your door they gave me a little Suzuki 125 motorcycle Mm -hmm. street bike not built for any kind of dirt riding or anything and they there were no paved roads where I was I was up country pretty far so that was my mode of transportation this old street bike that wasn't wasn't built for this going back to the fish farms way up in the in the country you're how old i am 70 (laughs) no then oh yeah how okay yes i'm 70 now yeah you're like 18 no no i was i was graduated from college so i was 20 early 20s yeah i was 21 22 man that's wild that was a good it was good really it was a lot of fun the folks there um enjoyed uh related well to to westerners to americans Mm -hmm. you know you know a lot of times they had a not super accurate view about what life was like in this country because they saw our movies you know so Mm. they'd look at you know john wayne and james bond and that kind of stuff super accurate yeah super (laughs) accurate but they, they were great people they were very accommodating very welcoming and it was a good, yeah. good two years, yeah. So you're in West Africa. What's right. what's the town village that you're like? Well, I was stationed in a town called Inkambe, mm-hmm. which was there's a. Um, it's about 200 miles up from the coast, 
So if, if you look at a map of Africa, Mount Cameroon is right right on that place where Africa comes down and then starts to go right kind of next to the border with Nigeria. Mm-hmm. And up from that mountain is a highlands that run inland. So the, the place that I was at was about three degrees north, I think, of the equator. So you'd expect it to be really hot, but it was also about 7,000 feet in elevation. So mm. it was actually fairly comfortable year-round. Wasn't too buggy, not too nice. snaky. My goodness. A bit buggy. There was a, yeah. tra- a tarantulas had come into the house every once in a while. Nope. But nope. One, one poisonous snake once. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Was there any safety concerns at this point in... Where, where you were? Mm, no, okay. I mean, as far as, yeah, uh, hostilities or, yeah, no, yeah. Uh, not at all. Okay. Um, what'd you do there? Well, so, it, you know, most of the time we were working, but we weren't working 24-7. So the work involved going out to talk to local farmers who mm-hmm. may or may not already have a fish pond. If they didn't have one, they wanted some advice on how to build one. The idea was to try to... Uh, uh, not just like dam up a stream and create an impoundment like mm-hmm. we might do here, like Lost Creek Lake, for example. You wanted to be able to shoot the water away from the stream and, and not have water flowing through all the time because the fish that we were able to provide for the local farmers were tilapia, which, you know, you can buy those in the grocery store yep. now, but you couldn't 20, 30 years ago. Mm. But tilapia are filter feeders, so they they suck the nutrients out of the water so you don't necessarily have to give them supplemental feed, which okay. is a good thing in Very that, good thing. that kind of situation. Okay. Yeah. And yeah. so the reason for these people wanting ponds with fish in them mm-hmm. was what? Well, to, to grow fish to eat. To eat, Just okay. local local food because they, they're a couple, like a couple 300 miles from the coast, so they didn't really yeah. get fish from the ocean at all and there weren't a lot of uh, other resources for fish up in the highlands there so it, it was a, it really a good way to get protein was that the goal for peace corps then maybe now too was to go out into these communities around the globe to make them better yeah to, to help to the extent you can you know the idea this is john kennedy came up with yes. this i don't know if it was his idea, but under his administration is when the Peace Corps started. The idea is send out, you know, mostly college kids, not all. I mean, older people, you know, right. Jimmy uh, Carter's mom, mm-hmm. I think, was a Peace Corps volunteer at one point. But uh, send out folks who have some experience in certain areas and access to resources that the local folks might not have to assist. And a, a lot of it is food related, but it wasn't mm-hmm. all. Some of it was teaching. Some of it was economics. Very cool. Yeah, it was, it was popular great. too around this in the seventies, mm-hmm. joining the Peace Corps. Yeah, yeah. Um, so wait, where does the does the catfish farm come into play? Well, okay, so the catfish farm happened after I came back from the Peace Corps. So okay. I've done my two years. My right? my idea is, although I have lousy grades, I still want to work in fisheries biology somewhere or another. I've done it for a couple of years, mm-hmm. so I ought to be able to do something. So what's out there? And I was able to hook up with a fella who um, had some associations with the Peace Corps, a guy named Leo Ray, mm-hmm. who had a uh, fish farm in Idaho growing catfish, which is in and of itself pretty unusual because most of the 
commercial catfish that are farmed in this country are grown in the southeast. Yes. In big old farm ponds, you know, like 200-acre ponds that are three feet deep. Um, You know, Alabama, Arkansas, South Carolina. There you go. Yes. You you had them growing up? Yeah. Yeah. My grandparents lived on a lake when I went fishing for the first time with my dad. That was the first fish I caught was a catfish. Mm -hmm. And that little booger stung me. Yeah. Yeah. They have little sharp little dorsal fins. They do. The little whiskers. That too, yeah. So this this farmer, Leo Ray, he, he had some property in Southern California um, and I think he was doing some fish farming down there at the time, too. But he um, discovered that in this property that he was looking at around Twin Falls, Idaho, mm-hmm. he had about 90 acres, I think. He had thermal artesian water, which means he didn't have to pump it and he didn't have to heat it. Came out of the ground without pumping at about 85 degrees, I think. Okay. Catfish like it at about 80, 79 degrees. He had a surface stream he could use to cool it off. And he just built a series of concrete raceways like they have at, you know, the local trout hatcheries that mm-hmm. they use to stock the lakes. Right. But instead of trout, he was growing catfish and did a great job with that. He had really a premium brand. He was able to market it as mountain grown catfish and they really were. They were an excellent product. Sold those uh, throughout the West Coast, really. Mm-hmm. For consumption. Mm-hmm. Okay. Sure. Mostly okay. to, mostly to high-end restaurants. Catfish. Yeah. That cracks me up. Yeah. That cracks me up. I mean, that's like you're that's like poor poor people cat. You know, I mean, it's I don't know. It's really good eating fish. It, great eating, yeah, especially. Yeah. yeah, there was a restaurant in when we moved to Las Vegas when I was 16 from South Carolina. Mm-hmm. We went into this super fancy restaurant in Las Vegas. And one of the things on there was some catfish dish. And I think it was like going for maybe 30 bucks or something. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking to myself, are you kidding me? <laughs> right. That's hilarious. Right. Nice blackened catfish. Yeah. Yeah. And another thing just uh, that's interesting about the, uh, that particular uh, fellow, Leo Ray, and his and his operation, he he decided, oh, probably 15, 20 years ago now that he wanted to branch out into other things. So he decided to raise sturgeon for the mm. eggs because he was going to mm-hmm. process that for caviar. Yeah. And in fact, that's turned out to be a good a good product and I under, I just saw an article in Forbes magazine uh, last month and they were they had a page about Idaho caviar and apparently caviar coming in from Russia and Eastern Europe is is uh, not happening as much for various reasons so Idaho caviar is the is the thing it's two days. words I would not put in a I, sentence I know, together right. is Idaho and caviar I know but there you go. That's wild. Uh-huh. That's that's pretty crazy. Yep. Well, in sturgeon, that's a big fish for our region, the Pacific Northwest. Right. Is right. it Columbia River? Yeah, Columbia River. I think they may have some in the snake, but Columbia, yeah, primarily. And I'm not familiar with it, but I'm fairly certain it's pretty – you can't catch a whole lot of sturgeon. You have to be really careful with – Yeah. The there's s- restrictions on right. it. Right. You can't catch them too big or too small. Mm-hmm. There's kind of a medium size, I think. But that's not – a caviar market that's just somebody catching a, yeah. a sturgeon to eat for dinner yeah which sturgeon is delicious mm-hmm. very good yeah so you work with this gentleman on his catfish farm mm-hmm. couple couple years okay i started off as kind of the the plant biologist or the you know the farm biologist but nice. you don't really need a biologist <laughs> in a place like that so you got to work in the processing plant and then i worked my way up to processing plant manager but you know after 
after a year or so of skin and catfish, I decided eh, it's time to look at something different. Mm. You have that realization where you go, I need a real job now. I mean, I don't, that's, that sounds no, mean. No, I know that what you mean. mean yeah, but... I'm, I'm not going to disagree. <laughs> Hopping in and out of uh, raceways in the middle of an Idaho winter, you know, it just wasn't oh. really what I wanted to do. No way. No way. But so you can skin a catfish like nobody's business. I, I can, yeah. Still? Yeah. Well, I haven't done it for a while because it's mostly trout fishing for me these days. But yeah, you just, uh, they, there's a metal bar with hooks that you're able to, you know, just put the, hook the fish up there mm-hmm. through the gills, a couple of slits on the back of the neck, and then you've got your pliers that you use to pull down the skin. And then you can either have a pan-ready cut where off comes the head and out come the guts, uh-huh. and it's good to go, or you may have to fillet it as well. Okay, so the skin, you don't you don't take off the scales, you just take off the whole skin. Yeah, there's no scales per se. It's just, just kind of a leathery skin, so it okay. rips off in one piece if you do it right. Oh, and you, I'm sure you can do it right. After lots and thousands of fish, yeah, thousands, you, you learn how. Thousands. That's <clears throat> that's awesome. And you're, you said trout fishing now. Yeah, we have a boat, so we do uh, lake fishing when we're when we're around. There's something about fishing, isn't there? I like it. It's fun. I love it. I love to fish. I mm-hmm. haven't done it in years. It's very zen. It, it, yeah, the way I fish, it's very zen because. <laughs> It's only when you're catching fish that it becomes unzen. Uh, yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Okay, yep. so you have this realization. I got to do something else. Mm-hmm. How, what comes next? Law what school. Avenue? Law okay. school. Why law school? From working on a catfish farm, why law I school? I couldn't think of anything better. Really? Like most people that go to law school, they have always wanted to go to law school. Yeah. Their dad was a lawyer. Their mom was a lawyer. Their brother was a lawyer, mm-hmm. whatever. And they've always known that they want to go to law school. I actually had a friend in the Peace Corps who wanted to go to law school. So that was probably a bit of the motivation. But mm. honestly, I'm on the fish farm. I decided to take the uh, the LSAT test, the Lawyer mm-hmm. Aptitude Law School Aptitude mm-hmm. test, just as kind of a lark, and I did pretty well with that. Okay. Probably because there was no pressure, because it was just kind of a, a you know playing with the idea sure. at that point. So um, so I decided, what the heck, I'll apply, and I applied. I only applied to one school. And remember, I have to deal with my not-so-great undergraduate grades to yes. get accepted into law school. Mm-hmm. And I really think the fact that I did a couple of years in the Peace Corps helped, you know, that they're looking for something other Well-rounded. than... Well-rounded. Yeah, mm-hmm. right, right. Not not somebody necessarily straight out of high school or the, straight out of college. The catfish farm had to help, too. It, maybe, maybe. I mean, that's just... Right. How many applicants are they getting that can say, I worked on a catfish farm? Yeah, that's farm. probably right. I don't know if I told them, but <laughs> yeah. But what, what a nice thing that that did, though, I'd been in Idaho for two years then, so I was an Idaho resident, and Idaho, at least at the time, had this provision in their state constitution that education shall be free to all residents of the state, and they didn't uh, distinguish between, you know, primary education and uh, college. So although, you know, you get charged some ding fees and whatnot, I was paying a thousand bucks a year or maybe a term to go to law school, which I couldn't have afforded to go anywhere else. That is incredible. Mm-hmm. It's honestly, it's how it should be now. It'd be nice if it could be. In, yeah, in my for opinion, sure. I understand yeah. it's it's maybe, yeah. My, my school was very affordable, but I also got scholarships. Mm. So when I graduated, I didn't have student debt right. at all. Right. I don't know, right. looking back, how I would have survived if I had to pay yeah. 
student, just yeah. student loans off. I mean, it's just, it's such a huge crisis in this country, higher education and the yeah. and being able to afford it. Absolutely. Well, yeah. good for yeah. you. That's amazing. I mean, you got, that, that's incredible that you were going to law school for that amount of cash. Turned out okay. And then my <laughs> idea, my idea was, well, I'll go to law school and then I'll become one of these hotshot lawyers that work in private practice and sue I don't know who and make a lot of money. <laughs> um, and I ended up in the DA's office instead, which mm. is, you know, a different kind of track. Where, what DA's office? I just started at the Jackson County DA's office in Medford. That was really my first, that was my first job actually practicing law as a lawyer. Okay, so you graduate, you you graduate in Idaho. Yeah, right, exactly. Graduate in Idaho, but mm-hmm. I decide I don't want to practice in Idaho because there's more deer than people in the area where I was living. <laughs> um, so I had this friend from the Peace Corps again, a mm-hmm. different friend who was going to uh, Oregon State okay. University working on his agricultural economics uh PhD, and he'd been doing that for a while. Wow. So I visited him a few times in Corvallis, decided I really liked Oregon. Um, so I decided, well, okay, I'm going to go to Oregon and take the bar in Oregon, which is what I did. And mm-hmm. then when I passed the bar, I'm just kind of looking around for a job and just kind of ended up in the DA's office in, in Medford, County. In Medford, Oregon. Yeah. Did you pass the bar the first time? I did pass the bar the first time, nice. yeah. Nice. I've heard it. Some haven't. Yeah, Laura, yeah. Laura Cromwell didn't pass the first time. Oh, a number of people don't pass the first time. We had a lawyer here locally, and I won't name him, although there was an article in the paper about this a number of years ago. But this particular lawyer took the bar like, I don't know, eight or nine or ten times before he finally passed it. And uh, they've changed the rules since then. I mm-hmm. think you only get three shots before they say you're, at least maybe you have to wait a while. That's a good rule. But his but his philosophy on that was, well, look, what I'm going to tell people is I may not be the smartest lawyer in the world, but by golly, I'm the most persistent, and that's what you really want. <laughs> that's awesome. So you take a job at the Jackson County DA's office. Mm-hmm. Uh, what year is this? Uh, 1980. 1980. How how big is is this office in 1980? Mm, I think there was maybe the DA and six or seven lawyers then. Oh, okay. Who was the DA at the time? Justin Smith. Okay. I'm just asking. Yeah, he's passed since mm-hmm. then. But yeah. Mm-hmm. You're a deputy DA? Right. That's okay. how you start. Uh, what's your caseload? What does it look like? Mostly, well, it's misdemeanors. So at, at that time, you either were a misdemeanor deputy or after you'd been there a while, you could maybe work up to do felony work. Mm-hmm. So the misdemeanor stuff that you deal with in DA's offices is minor assaults, mm-hmm. minor thefts, and a lot of DUII cases. Mm, I bet. When, the, the times that I've been in court for those little, those cases, mm-hmm. it just seems so quick and no nonsense it's just like psh, do you have an attorney nope psh, psh, right. sign something off done right it's just quick 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 of course you're there for arrangements to there maybe to see a yep. sentencing or a, yes. first arrangement first on arraignment somebody usually. who's yeah. committed a major offense so yeah yeah you're not seeing the the trial side of it when you do that um, so yeah you can have full-blown trials on a duii in fact that's probably the most common case that is tried mm. in the da's office is a is a DUII. Is that the path you wanted to go down? Did you want to do trial work? Well, uh, again, my original idea wasn't to work in the DA's office at all. It was kind of like that's just the way it 
Oh, this is just a little, just get some experience in the DA's office and you're out of there. Well, that's right. A couple, three years, Mm -hmm. I'll go do something else. But I liked it. So, yeah. And if, yeah, if if you don't, if you don't like trial work, then you won't like working in a DA's office. What'd you like about it? What sold you on it? Well, I like the, you know, I like the fact that you were doing good, that you Mm -hmm. didn't have to necessarily do what your client told you because your client is the state of Oregon. So it's really up to you to decide what the best way to approach a case is. You, you know, you've got a supervisor you may have mm-hmm. to be talking to, but um, again, it's, it's, uh, the idea is to serve justice. And I think that was, that was important. I like, you know, I like the trial work. I like the, you know, thinking on your feet and mm-hmm. the give and take and winning a case that was a tough case to win. That was a lot of fun. Sure. So you, when do you start doing trial work? Is it a matter of a few years or? Oh, no. It's a matter of a few minutes often. <laughs> really? Yeah. I think I did a jury trial. I'm pretty sure I did a jury trial on my third day on the job. No way. Yeah. Yeah, somebody was sick and, you know, nobody else was available to try the case. So, you know. Were you yeah. nervous? Oh, I'm sure I was. Yeah, I don't. That's, I think, really, I think it was a third day on the job. And um, Bill Juba, who was uh, the next DA after Justin Smith, but he was a deputy DA then. He'd been there a year or two longer than I. Uh, and he was having, they were having their first baby that day. So he wasn't mm. going to be trying the case. Nope. So they said, Mark, here, do this. It's It was a pro se defendant which means he didn't have a lawyer so theoretically that meant it should be you know like easier and no problem to to try the case and bill gave me a few notes and i think he actually stayed in the courtroom for a few minutes and gave me some you know some direction from the back of the courtroom and then took off to go to go be a dad that's awesome yeah the third day on this job they sent me to klamath falls for a murder trial oh there you go right Third day on the job. You learn by doing. I'm like, what? Where's Klamath Falls? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> How do I get there? Yeah. That was actually a guy, a super gruesome case. A, an older man coerced the 16-year-old, and they ended up, like, killing a family member and setting the trailer on fire. Mm. It was gnarly. And I'm just, I was so excited. So excited. Right. It's just right. not right. right. We're not right in the head. Um <laughs> Did you like did you like that trial work that you did on the third day of the job? Did it was it exciting after the fact? Uh, yeah, that was yeah. it was a totally different case actually because of that particular defendant and it was a this pro se client started started off the uh, the he's having a jury trial even though he doesn't have a lawyer mm-hmm. and he's uh, asking the jurors, he's got this list of 200 questions, and he's asking every juror the same 80 or 60 questions. And you can see he's alienating the jury panel entirely. He's asking questions like, um, if I told you that I represented myself, would you believe that I have a fool for a client? Weird stuff like that. So, oh man, uh, he was done. He would, yeah. He could, you could tell that the jury wasn't gonna like him, but it had some interesting wrinkles. But yeah, but it was a, it was kind of a, I, I haven't forgotten that case yet. No, you haven't. Many, many, many years ago. It's funny what we remember, what we yeah. hang on to, and what yeah. we forget. Um, so how long are you deputy DA before you take the plunge? Uh, yeah, so that's about 12, 13 years. And, and what happened there was I'd, uh, 
Bill Juba became district attorney. Mm -hmm. He ran against uh, Justin Smith Mm -hmm. and uh, defeated Justin in a contested election. So he's the new DA. He makes me his chief deputy DA. Um, So I'm the number two person in the office. And he served just four years, and he, he died um, incredibly young, way too, way oh, too young. Wow. He had a had a heart attack, and he he just passed. So um, there's a vacancy, and the governor appointed me to fill the vacancy. Okay, and then were you DA from that point until? Right, I had to run. I had uh, you still have to run for election every four right. years. Right. Um, I was reelected five times. One of those was contested. The really kind of the first first real election was mm-hmm. contested and after that there was no nobody running against me five times mm-hmm. wow and how many you said 20 years mm-hmm. you were da what are some of the big cases that stick out to you i mean i have one written down that i want to talk about with mm-hmm. you because i was in the courtroom at the time but what what are looking back what are some of the cases that just won't leave you well I mean, I certainly could talk. Those are mostly murder cases that, you know, you tend to to remember mm-hmm. most, probably. Is that because it's just so rare here? It is rare, yeah. I mean, we had, at least back back when I was DA, we had like, you know, six or eight murders a year in a county of 200-something, yeah. 230,000. Right. So it didn't seem like a lot necessarily. Uh, but, um, but... I also, before I became DA, before Bill died, I had a, about a six-year stint working child abuse cases. Mm-hmm. And um, th- that's interesting, I think, because before I started doing that, child abuse cases in the office were handled the way other cases were handled. They were kind of assigned to the more senior deputy DAs by rotation. There was no nobody specializing in that particular type of uh, crime. And uh, let's see, it was 1986. There was a group of citizens in the county. The the group was called Protex. Mm-hmm. And these folks were interested in trying to see if we could do better with responding to child abuse in the county. Because these, and correct me if I'm wrong, these cases, like you just said, were, were sort of... Um, you guys were handling them just like you were handling any other case, so there was really no special care, a special attention. Well, yeah, there was no specialist assigned to the case. Okay. I mean, not to say that we were given those cases right. short shrift because right. we weren't, but these folks mm-hmm. thought there should be one person in the office that specializes in these cases. Okay. That person will get more experience, they'll get more training. They'll know who to network with, and people from outside the office will know who to go to right. with questions and concerns about a child abuse matter. Um, so those folks presented at a county board of commissioners meeting, mm-hmm. and they said, board of commissioners, you need to give the DA, who was Justin Smith at the time, give the DA another staff person to specialize in child abuse cases. And Justin was supportive of that, but he'd also been, you know, he'd been trying to get more staff out of the Board of County Commissioners for a number of years and hadn't been successful. But these folks convinced the board that that was an important specialized position that ought to be created. So uh, they did fund it. And I told Justin I was interested in Mm -hmm. doing that work. He said, you got it, Mark. 
Is is part of it with this special um, position? Is part of it with these cases? Do you have to talk to the children usually? Is that part of it? Yeah, certainly. If the case is going to proceed to trial, okay. yeah, you absolutely need to meet with the kids. Okay, yeah. super super <clears throat> sensitive mm-hmm. material. I mean, I don't know. Did you see that with this position and with these cases that enough was being done or not enough was being done? It, it was an interesting time mm-hmm. in uh, how we as a, a culture, a society, dealt with child abuse. So we're talking like mid-80s, 85, right. 86, right. right? So if you look nationally at um, how we were responding to child abuse um, as a country, mm-hmm. it, we weren't, you know, all, you know, if you go back you know, 30, 40, 50 years, it was kind of like sweep it under the rug, that's yep. just Uncle Johnny, that yeah. kind of thing. So by the time the early 80s hit, that philosophy was changing and more cases were Thank being goodness. reported. Mm-hmm. So nationwide, you saw the number of cases reported like Mm. almost doubling every year for five or six years. And nobody thought that was because we were having twice as much child abuse from one year to the next. It was, we were listening to what the kids were saying now and trying to do something about it. So you guys had a decent caseload then within the county? yeah, uh, Yeah. You know, part of that is the more you pay attention to it, the more you reach out to the community, Kids are going to feel more um, receptive to mm-hmm. reporting abuse, mm-hmm. and if it gets reported, it's more likely to make it to Child Protective Services or law enforcement, and then more likely to be prosecuted. Okay. Is this where CAC comes in? Sure. The Child Abuse uh, Children's Advocacy Center was created about that same time. By this group? or Well, that not that particular group, but a similar group. Uh, it was called the Jackson County Child Abuse Task Force. And okay. this is a group of mostly professional folks that dealt with kids, child protective service workers, teachers, uh, maybe some police officers. Um, and they've just been, they've been meeting regularly, doing some training and seminars and whatnot. But... Um, that was mainly what was happening at the time. But um, in, uh, let's see, in 1988, I think, or 87, Josephine County got a grant, probably it was 89, actually. Josephine Ca- County got a grant to build a children's advocacy center in Josephine County. Mm-hmm. And the first one of those actually had started in Huntsville, Alabama a few years before, and they were starting just starting Mm -hmm. to spread around the country then. So the Child Abuse Task Force looked at that and said, well, we can't let Josephine County get ahead of Jackson County, by golly. We need our own. But uh, there weren't any big grant funds available at the time, Mm -hmm. so we had to go out and kind of raise awareness and raise money locally in order to build our first center. And we were able to do that successfully. It's, It's crazy to think about the things you have to do to raise money for you know, having bake sales and right, <laughs> whatnot right, right. to get these things uh, get these things going. But you guys actually, um, this group finds an old home, an old house, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, yeah. renovate. Right. There was clearly a need for a children's advocacy center. Right. Which is why all of this came about. Sure, be- because um, the idea behind a children's advocacy center is to try to change the system. 
to be more responsive to child victims, mm-hmm. child victims. Yeah. You know, if you if you look at what ultimately happens in a courtroom, for example, with an adult, say an adult sexual abuse victim, and that is hard enough mm-hmm. for you know a 30-year-old man or woman to go in there and talk about being sexually abused or assaulted by somebody. But then you think of a six-year-old kid trying to do the same thing. It's no. it's hard. So you need a new you need a different environment. Right, exactly, exactly. And that starts it starts with the investigation and the intake process. So before children's advocacy centers, child might be interviewed by a police officer. Know, in the house where the abuse occurred, maybe, or in a police station, mm. or, you know, worst case scenario, in the back of a patrol car. No. So we wanted to change that so we could find a place where it would be kid-friendly, it looked like grandma's house, mm-hmm. and we would do the interviews there rather than other places that weren't as comfortable for the kids. Goal achieved. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's any place more cozy than the Children's Advocacy yeah, Center. Yeah, it's pretty good, isn't it's, it? It's pretty, pretty nice. great, yeah. yeah. So you guys renovate this, uh-huh. this building. Yep. It opens when? 91, March of 91, I think, or mm-hmm. April. And then, because uh, mm-hmm. you sent me the PowerPoint that you presented mm-hmm. just recently at the CAC fundraiser. Right, the annual winter gala. Yep. Yes, Um you guys had this paid off when? Yeah, we paid it off in, let's see, I think about five or six years. So, yeah, mid, mid-90s mid maybe. And I know it's grown since the inception of this, but, I mean, there's a doctor on staff right. to do exams, examinations, right. which that's a whole area of the CAC that I think is super special. That and the counselor who is there to... They are trained right. to talk to children who have been in situations like this. Right. The doctor is trained to do an examination of a child who's just gone through some sort of sexual assault right. or abuse, right. which they're already sensitive and closed down and closed up. And so to be able to talk to that child and examine them, that's mm-hmm. that's some skill. And, and it was a real need because before we had an in-house physician – uh, we had to go to local pediatricians or, right. you know, just local doctors who didn't necessarily have as much training as they might have liked to do it. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, they you, you get you start leaning on one particular doctor and pretty soon she's got way too many child abuse cases and this rest of this practice. Right. Now she's getting subpoenaed for trials that may or may not go and it's mm-hmm. just totally messing up schedules. Mm-hmm. So. The, the reason that we have an in-house physician is thanks to Asante. They created the first full-time position. Asante just totally funded mm. our doctor for a number of years there, completely on their own hook because Go they saw how important this work was. Yeah. yeah. So now, who? how does the CAC get funded? Local well, f- yeah, good question. So there's a, a, like anything else, there's a number of legs to the stool. There is a number, uh, a fair amount of state funding that comes in. Uh, they created a statute a long time ago now that takes part of the money that a criminal defendant pays in court. Some of it goes to fund the police academy and victim witness programs at DA's offices and whatnot. Uh, But part of it goes to children's advocacy centers around the state. So that's some of it. Uh, We do grant funding, certainly. We'll go to local, uh, you know, grant organizations Mm -hmm. and, you know, the Meyer Memorial Trust or Mm -hmm. what have you and say, you know, we'd like to do this particular project for three years. Can you help us with some funding? 
Uh, we do billing, although we never charge clients uh, for out-of-pocket costs, never. But we will always bill insurance when we can, either uh, uh, direct insurance mm-hmm. or Oregon Health Plan, if mm-hmm. that's what the client uh, family has. Okay. Does the CAC get involved initially? They get involved initially with the case. Mm-hmm. Is there ever any sort of longevity with that? I mean, or or do you after when the case is over, those those kids don't go to the CAC anymore for like count you know counseling or questioning or anything like that? Uh, that shouldn't be questioning after the case is over. We should okay. be done with with that piece of it. But counseling, yeah, that can continue. Mm-hmm. Our our goal with the counseling, at least initially, was. Uh, because when we started it, again, there weren't a lot of counselors available right. for these kids, and they would kids would report the abuse, and then they get stuck on somebody's waiting list for three months while this whole crisis is going mm-hmm. on in their lives. You know, they've reported stepdad, he's in jail, mom's had to move out of the house or whatever, and they're on a waiting list for counseling. Mm-hmm. So we, we tried to address that by having some in-house counseling. The goal isn't necessarily for long-term counseling, but we will, we will follow up with, with those kids and with the families too mm-hmm. for um, a significant period of time after the initial contact. And this organization has changed so much since you guys started it. Mm-hmm. It's definitely evolved for sure. It's evolved and it's just, I mean, they, you know, we see press releases in our email inbox on trainings that the CAC puts on so you can recognize the signs right. of abuse. Right. And so they're really spreading the word. It's about awareness, mm-hmm. education, mm-hmm. and they're they're doing great work as far as the, the cases that the DA's office has to handle. Yeah, absolutely. And the victim witness program at the mm-hmm. DA's office is still the, the primary group that deals with the kids when we're talking about going to trial. Yeah. Uh, but we, you know, we work with those folks. We work at the CASA program yeah. where we have CASA volunteers who work with kid advocate for kids in court mm-hmm. on juvenile dependency matters. We mm-hmm. work with those. But everybody's got their own a job to do, even though we may be seeing the same child in different types of venues. Mm. Do you think this is part of your legacy? Would you say that? Uh, I mean, I know I, there were a lot of people involved. Yeah, right. But you played a huge role. You still play a huge role. Yeah, I'm still on the board. They haven't been able to get rid of me yet. You, uh, lo- I mean, you really do. You have a very big soft spot for this organization. I, I do. It's. I'm so proud of the work we were able to do to get this organization up and running, the work it continues to do today. Mm-hmm. It's, I mean, it's really like, you know, aside from my family, it's the thing I am most proud of, I'd mm-hmm. say. And then DA's office is obviously up there too. So let's say three things okay. that I'm most proud of, right? <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's a great legacy. They uh, they put my name on the, on the boardroom, which mm. I, I told somebody long ago, you should never put anybody's name on anything while they're still alive. <laughs> Because you never know, but uh, <laughs> That's like, so far I haven't disappointed. Um, why do you think it holds such a special place for you? Well, it you know we created it from scratch. You really, so, really did. You know, it wasn't there, and now it's there, and it's just it was. Uh, it's been so well received, so well supported by the community. Another way that we raise funds is is like the gala that we do every mm-hmm. year that you mm-hmm. were able to attend mm-hmm. and we do other fundraising events throughout the year the community has been a great supporter of the center and that's been 
extremely heartening. And one of the things I said at, at the gala when I was talking about those PowerPoint slides is Josephine County got a big grant to build a center. We couldn't get a grant. We mm -hmm. had to go knocking on doors and mm -hmm. talking to people. And in the long run, I really think that that helped a lot because the community knows who we are, what we do, and and that's helped us in the fundraising going forward. Yeah, there's definitely, CAC is definitely a name mm -hmm. in Jackson County. Mm -hmm. I mean, everybody for the most part knows the work that's being done there. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's just it's from scratch. Was it was it very sweet that this house was right, sort of right across the street from the DA's office, or was that the point? Was that the goal? Uh, yeah, one of the goals was to have it close to the courthouse, mm -hmm. the DA's office, the police department, and the sheriff were all right there. Right there. Yeah, right there, yeah. Right. Yeah, no, that was. We didn't want to be too far afield. For sure. Our original house that we remodeled, uh, we outgrew that facility mm -hmm. within about four or five years, and we wanted to just expand down there. That's about three blocks down the 10th Street from mm -hmm. where we currently are, but we couldn't, couldn't buy anywhere else, so we ended up selling that house. I think we sold it for like you know, 150,000 and we paid like 40,000 for it or something. So we did make some money on good. that. Yeah, that was nice. good. Nice. And we bought the a uh, facility from uh, Bruce Abelo, the architect that was very involved in helping us get that first center remodeled mm -hmm. and and going. We bought his office and uh, didn't have to remodel that very much, but then we ran out of space there. So we got a big community development block grant to build the therapy medical wing that's attached right. to the original building. And then we ran out of space again. So we built the, the, medic, the uh, intake unit that's next to that. It's hey, it's a it's maybe a good problem to have because you're you're doing this because it's it's expanding, which means there's a lot of cases that you're dealing with, which I get, but it's helping. It's doing really good work. It is, yeah, and having the a, an adequate physical plan right. is is really extremely important to the work. Well, kudos to you and everyone else who made that happen. A lot of people feels good, right? Mm -hmm. It does when you look back on your life and you can. I I helped do that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, let's get back to those big cases. Okay. Any that stick out to you, like one, two, three, like how many, like, I mean, I'm sure because you've covered, you've, you've handled how many cases? Hundreds? Cases? Cases, trials? Oh, thousands. Thousands uh, of cases. Oh, but trials? No, uh, maybe 200, 300 trials. That's still Maybe, maybe, maybe 300 trials. Jury trials, mind you. Yeah, that's a lot, yeah. Mark Huddleston. What are some of the big ones? Well, they're, you know, they're mostly, I mean, the ones that people would recognize are mostly the murder cases. Yep. So Robert Ackermont is, is the one that probably, oh, you know, yeah. was the most visible case. He was the one who was convicted of, mm -hmm. he was convicted, right? Yeah, right. Of killing the local lesbian couple, mm -hmm. um, help me with their names, Michelle. Yeah, Michelle Abdil and Abdel? Roxana Ellis. That's, that's right. Yeah. That was in the, was that in the 90s? Uh, yeah, I think, I don't remember the exact date, but yeah, I think that's early 90s is right. That uh, was before my time, yeah. but um, that was, yeah, huge case. Very big news here. Incredibly sad. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that was a, I mean, they're, they're all. Well, yeah, none of them they're are happy by any means. all incredibly sad situations. Yeah, he, he, but he, I mean, he was a, a real piece of work. Mm -hmm. He, you know, he'd. He had a good job. He was working for um, a trucking company, making really good money as a dispatcher for trucking down. I think he was in Vegas at the time, and 
he fell in love with a stripper down there and mm -hmm. gave her all his money and mm -hmm. then uh, he ended up moving up to Oregon he lived with his mom who'd moved up here uh, before but before he moved up here he killed a young man down in California and that mm. was an unsolved murder at the time and then we had this double homicide here in Medford and in the process of solving that case the police were able to put him together with the California murder as well okay so he was ultimately uh, convicted in California of that murder as well he received death sentences in both states mm -hmm. and the the death sentence against him was ultimately uh, tossed out because of his, uh, what I tend to think are subsequent mental issues, but mm -hmm. he was able to uh, persuade all the mental health professionals that saw him at the prison that he had issues that uh, made him eligible for a U.S. Supreme Court opinion that says you can't execute a person who has a mental mm -hmm. disease. Do you think he was mentally unstable? Well, he was certainly a different kind of guy, but at, you know, at the time they didn't even offer a mental disease mm. or defect defense at trial. So, I mean, this is basically, they were saying, this is something that came on after he was convicted and whether or not he was okay. laying it on or not, I don't know, but we didn't have enough evidence to prove that he wasn't. Right. Was he in the courtroom during the trial? Uh -huh. Oh okay. yeah, they're always in the courtroom. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's, they have to be? They have to be. I mean, it theoretically, a judge can toss them out if they're misbehaving badly. Mm -hmm. And if they did that, they'd probably still link them up with the television. But yeah, they, re they yeah. have a constitutional right to be there, right? Uh, what was his motive in that case? Well, that's interesting because, as you said, that the two victims here were gay women, mm -hmm. and there was some kind of concern that that was the motivating factor. Yeah. But in reality, I think it was just a robbery. You know, mm -hmm. he was he was trying to get money, and he you know he was able to get some money uh, out of this, and I think really that that was his motivation. Although he said both things, because he was he was given interviews to uh, media folks. He uh, you know he, he just kept talking until the jail finally said, "Forget <laughs> it, you're you're not talking to the media anymore." Stop talking. Yeah. Um, when you when something like that happens, police arrive. Do you get called instantly? Because you're yeah. a DA at the time. Yeah, I was. Yes, uh, yes, you do. Okay. Yeah. And you have to go. Somebody has to go. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, I di I didn't necessarily respond to every call out for a homicide, mm -hmm. but my rule what we had we had this list of who gets called for what uh, that we got out to all the police departments. Uh, and, you know, if it was a DUII, we wanted them to call the lawyers that were currently working on DUII cases because right. they would be most familiar with it. Okay. So my, uh, my directive was if it's a homicide case or an officer-involved shooting case, then I want you to call me. Mm -hmm. I may or may not respond personally, but if not, I'm going to designate a deputy DA. Trish, this is your case. You've got it from here on out. Go out to the scene, find out what's going on, see how you can assist. Okay. When you get the call and you hear there's a double homicide, I mean, have you ever been shocked to hear that something like this has happened? Was it shocking to you at the time? Or are you just thinking business mode i gotta put on my business hat yeah you know that's kind of what you have to do mm -hmm. you, you have to treat it all professionally and and uh, just decide you know you want to make sure that everything goes as well as it possibly can mm -hmm. you don't want legal issues to be coming up down the road right um okay so that's another that's a big case 
What's another one that was big? Oh, jeez. Um, oh, Billy Gilly. Billy Gilly hmm, has another I've... another high profile case, and I didn't actually handle the underlying trial on that yeah. case, uh, but that's a fella who. Uh, with a baseball bat, beat his mother and father and younger sister, bludgeoned them to death. Um, Where was that? Uh, that happened out um, outside of Medford, rural rural Jackson County, but not too far. And that was when? Was that nineties? That was that was re- no, that was eighties, really early okay. on. That was really early on. Like I said, I I don't even. Th- now, I don't think I was even in the office when the mm-hmm. underlying crime happened, but he was convicted at trial, but then he had like years of post-conviction matters and appeals. He went through the state system and through the federal courts, and he finally convinced a federal judge that um, his trial lawyer hadn't done everything that the federal judge thought he should mm-hmm. have done and that he was entitled to a new and it turned out to just be a new sentencing hearing and not okay. a whole new trial which is fortunate because trying to try a case that old is very difficult i can't even imagine i'm hooked on some of these netflix documentaries and mm-hmm. shows that are mm-hmm. bringing up these old cases that are 20 years old and they're going back and looking at evidence and trying to talk to new witnesses yeah I can't even imagine the legwork that that takes. Right. Um, and his, I remember someone who I used to work, like work with here at KTBL mentioning the Billy Gilly case. Mm-hmm. That was his real name. That was his given name. Mm-hmm. That's well, just it was, unfortunate. It was William, but yeah. Poor kid. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you, yeah. I mean, I'm not trying to be insensitive, but Billy Gilly, that's just a terrible, terrible name. Very unfortunate. Was he finally convicted? Right. So at the resentencing hearing, he was, uh, uh, you know, it wasn't a question of guilt or innocence at that point. Okay. It's just what the sentence should be. I see. And he okay. killed three people. So yeah. we were looking for no death penalty was available in his case because death penalty has kind of come and gone as mm. an option over the years. But, you know, our goal was to get at least uh, three life sentences again to run consecutive. And I think the way it shook out, we ended up with two consecutive life sentences. But, you know, a life sentence in Oregon, that's true life, mm-hmm. means that you should you should never get out. Okay. There are other uh, life sentences, options that aren't true life, that 30 years you mm-hmm. can be considered for parole. But this is true life. Okay. Do you know if he's still in prison? I, I don't know really what his situation is mm. at this point, no. It'd be interesting to yeah. find out. Um, one of the trials that I wrote down that you you handled was the Gary Rep murder mm-hmm. trial. Yeah, I mean that was a, that's a big one for me only because I covered it. I was the only reporter uh-huh. covering it as far as the video goes. Um, but that was the case of, and you may have to help me, National Guard soldier, or he was just going into the National Guard. Yeah, he was in uh, was in the reserves or mm-hmm. something National Guard. I don't. He remember was about which. to become an OSP trooper. Right. Mm. Right, he was. I think he'd been hired at okay. that point. I think. Okay. Yeah, but yes. Um, mm. And was married to Carrie. Carrie, Carrie Rep Johnson. Yeah. Carrie Rep Johnson. Yeah. Um, she was pregnant at the time yeah. with another man's baby. It was not Gary's, right. and her two sons were also not Gary's. 
right. Right. I think that's right. Right. Yeah. So the obvious, I mean, the details that stick out to me about this case was the, um, when the conviction came down, I think it was just for the loss of one life, Carrie, right? Or he, was, was it two? He wasn't convicted. He, he was acquitted. He I'm was sorry. Acquitted, but, yeah. but if he was, because I think her parents came back and said, we want to change the rules. So, right. Okay. That's what you're remembering. Yeah, yes. exactly. Because, so this is the situation. She was pregnant at mm -hmm. the time she was killed. So, yes, you charge him with murder for killing Carrie. But then the question is, can you charge him with murder for killing a viable fetus? Right. And the answer was no. Oregon law at the time, and I don't believe it's changed, was that you're not a person for purposes of the murder statute until you're actually born. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't mean, though, that there couldn't be a law, you know, some sort of a fetal endangerment, fetal homicide type mm -hmm. of law mm -hmm. that could be passed. And, yeah, um, uh, Carrie's folks lobbied for that with the legislature. I, I don't know that anything came of that, at least at the time. I don't either. I don't. I don't remember anything, mm -hmm. but it's but you know I've been retired for se over seven years now, so good for you. Some of the details are fading away. Good, let them yeah. right, yeah. let yeah. them fade. Yeah. Um, a couple of things I was shocked with that trial. This was my first murder trial. Mm -hmm. um, it honestly it, it gave me nightmares just because of all of the visuals that you guys have to put up for the jury. Yeah, um, I, I didn't realize you could show people that in a courtroom. Graphic graphic images right, right. Um, some of the things that stick out to me though are things like there was a footprint by the bed right in fact I believe you guys made or someone made Gary walk on a piece of paper in the courtroom with ink on his feet yeah they had so th there were the Oregon State Police Crime Lab boy they worked their hearts out on they that did. case they they worked real hard uh, uh, John Amish and oh See, it's been too long. I'm oh, forgetting yeah. the name of the other fellow that was primarily involved with that case. But um, yeah, they they worked. They looked for blood splatter evidence. They did the whole thing. But they also, I think, it was with luminol, which is a process of, mm -hmm. you know, putting out some kind of a, a chemical into the air that causes uh, biological matter to fluoresce. So they were able to identify a few footprints that we determined were made in carries blood mm -hmm. uh, and they weren't visible to the naked eye but with the luminol we could do that so they were able to photograph that you know take measurements and then we wanted to get a sample with Gary so that yeah they had them mm -hmm. him walk on a, a big long sheet of uh, butcher paper yep and then we sent all that stuff off to an expert to look at and he said yeah I think this is the same person it's a I'm match convinced that mm -hmm. this is the same person so we had that expert testify at trial, but the defense also had their own expert testify, and he said, no, I don't agree with that. Of so, course. So, you know, that's a question for the jury to right. decide. There were so many questions within the trial. I mean, I mean, I remember just, I was trying to go into it with a super open mind. You would, the state would present its side, and then the defense would present its side, and I'm looking at the jury, I'm like, oh. It was, a, yeah, I mean, Obviously, I felt he was guilty, or I of wouldn't course. have prosecuted of him, course. right? But, you know, look for a jury looking at that case, um, the evidence was circumstantial. The circumstantial evidence isn't a bad thing. 
DNA evidence is circumstantial evidence. Mm -hmm. The opposite of circumstantial is eyewitness evidence, and you don't often have eyewitness evidence of a homicide. But it was, you know, it was a, a challenging case. I was disappointed in the verdict, but of course. I understand, you know, of course. I understand the jury coming to that conclusion. I, I think guess. that was, what, a three-week trial? It was a long trial. Long yeah. trial, yeah. yeah. Um, and I also remember talking with, you know, some some of the guys in the police force who worked this who also were like, this is our guy. There's no one else. Yeah. And one officer, one detective said to me, who, who else could it have been? Rare stranger-on-stranger crimes like this do not happen right, here. Right, And that's, for me, I was like, huh, I didn't even think about it that way. Yeah, the alternative was somebody broke in and, and killed her. And that, I mean, I argue that that was not a likely alternative. Right. And the, the timing the timing was kind of tight because he, he went from there to a baseball game yep. where at least one of the boys was playing ball. So we kind of knew what happened when. And um, there was a 911 call in yes. this case, too, which originally we didn't know about. Mm-hmm. Um, uh but let's see what had happened. Uh, Tim Doney, who was a detective at the yes. time, and uh, he was the the uh, lead officer on the case. And I think what he did was he went in and he hit the redial button on the phone, and it rang through to nine one one. But then when they tried to find a record of that call in their system, they couldn't find it. So I think we assumed it hadn't gone through or something. But then he wasn't satisfied with that, so. Mm-hmm. Although it took a while, he kept shaking the you know the tree with with the system that they were using, and they were ultimately able to find that yes, there was a call that came through from the rep residence two nine one one, and you couldn't really hear much of anything on the tape. We actually had experts come in and talk about that I too, remember. but you yeah. couldn't you couldn't hear much. But the timing was critical, so we you know argued that that's when. The homicide occurred, right? The why else would there be a nine one one call? call? Yeah, and then we knew what time he showed up at the at the ballpark. Right, and I think the big thing with that nine one one call is that it was essentially a hang up because no one was talking on the other end of the nine one one call. Yeah, right. And typically, from what I understand, if someone calls nine one one and they hang up, you always send someone. All right, that's. That's the policy, yeah. And that particular dispatcher, that was one of the most heartbreaking things in the courtroom because that particular dispatcher did not send anyone. And you could argue if someone was sent right after that call, we may be, it may be a completely different case. Yeah, you may have caught the the suspect in in the home. Yeah, Yeah, and I think that policy, Mm. I think that was always the policy with the dispatch center, but now it's definitely, it's been very much enforced after this case. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, but yeah, he, he was acquitted and it was just a very, I learned a lot. I mean, I was very grateful for that case. I, I hate the fact that this beautiful young person died, but it was very, very educational for me to see how our system works. Eye opening. And it was, it was nice to share it with viewers too, because a lot of people, the courtroom was pretty full every single day. Yeah. 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 Is that a big one that sticks out for you? Oh yeah. That was a, that was a difficult case that I'm. I'll take that to my grave. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, I'm sure there's there's lots of those. You guys do the best that you can, and at the end of the day, it's not up to you. Right. It's up to this group of 12 strangers. That's how our system works. You know, yeah. It's not perfect, but it's the best system in the world. Mm-hmm. Who was the uh, judge on that trial? Uh, let's was see. Was that Mejia? 
Well, let's see, it was going to be Judge Carmen, and then it got postponed. Now, I think it was, uh, I think it was Judge Davis. Was it Judge Davis? Was there a Judge White? Was it Judge White? I, it was Judge, Judge White. White. Was it Judge White? It was White? Judge White. Yep. Because he was nice to me. <laughs> Sound, sounds right. Judge White. Ray White. Yes. Yeah. Ray White. Very nice to me. So was the bailiff. The bailiff was very nice to me. I don't remember his name. I sent him a thank you note after that trial because he was so kind to me during that entire trial. Those, so. are, those are good folks, the bailiffs. Well, we're going to wrap up Mark Huddleston. Okay. Um, I don't want to bring this down by talking about another murder case, but they are they are fascinating. For the, for the rest of us who don't have to do them, mm-hmm. they are fascinating. All the evidence. Sure. Sure. Yeah. That's what when you look at forensic files on the TV, you're looking at murder cases. It's good, ne- man. Never I mean, anything else. Yeah. I yeah. mean, that's I'm telling you, my mm-hmm. Netflix. That's all. That's all I watch are these mm-hmm. just old murder cases. One more question about that trial. Any trial, the evidence that you guys present, mm-hmm. where does that go when the trial's done? Well, the court keeps it. It's all submitted to the court, so the court's in charge of it. Mm-hmm. And then if the case goes up on appeal. It used to be the court would just keep it, but these days they're sending it back to the parties that submitted it. So mm-hmm. state's evidence goes back to the DA's office, and the okay. defense evidence goes back to them. But they have, they're charged with hanging on to it and not messing around with it until any appeal is done on the off chance that an appellate right. judge might want to look at it. Or if the case comes back for retrial, you need the evidence again. And it's sealed up. Yeah. Okay. It goes back to the police department. They'll okay. keep it in their property control room. Okay, interesting stuff. All right, uh, let's wrap up and get to the final three. Best advice you've ever been given? Well, so I don't listen to advice too much, but um, <laughs> but as a prosecutor, the best advice I was ever given was don't ask a question you don't know the answer to. So that's one of the key rules in cross-examination particularly. Mm-hmm. You want to make sure your, your plan and your goal in cross-examination is to narrow down the focus of what the the defense witness can say so you don't want to be asking broad open-ended questions good and that's a learning process you really cross-examination is an art is it Mm -hmm. okay um good advice for all those young prosecutors that are they've all heard that okay yeah yeah (laughs) if you ever left this place uh what would you miss the most what would bring you back here when i first moved to oregon i wanted to or at least i thought i wanted to go live at the coast because I, I knew enough about the Oregon coast to knew it was a jewel and beautiful and a great place to be. Mm-hmm. But because I got the job in Medford, I ended up in Medford, and that's turned out super well. I met my wife here in Medford, and I raised my family in Medford. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the beautiful thing about southern Oregon is the coast is still there. You yeah. can go visit it, but you don't have to live there during the right. rainy season. It's on the left. It's on the left, mm-hmm. right? The mountain lakes are up there. The Rogue River's there. It's a gorgeous place to live. Mm-hmm. I love the weather. The hot weather in the summer doesn't bother me too much. Um, so it's a great – and the people. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just it's just a great place, great part of a great state. It really is. Yeah, we're very lucky. Mm-hmm. Very, very lucky. Yeah. All right, final meal, final okay. drink. Final meal. Mm-hmm. So you going to send me to death row, are you? I <laughs> My no. last meal? Listen, everybody, it's your own interpretation, but I'm just, someone has said, tomorrow, that's it. What are you going to put in your belly? No, Okay. Well, let's see. So it should be probably uh, a can of Insure, because that means I've made it to age 90, <laughs> and that's all I'm drinking is Insure, uh-huh. rather than kicking off next week. You're what flavor? Me, what flavor oh, of Insure? I've never had Insure. I don't Good, know. don't. I, I'm guessing chocolate. <laughs> 
If you're talking favorite meal, I'm going to say mm-hmm. seafood of some sort. Mm-hmm. I love seafood. Uh, so maybe start with an oyster shooter and have a Dungeness crab and some uh, garlic bread and Perfect. a nice Caesar salad. Love it. Yeah. That's good stuff. And to drink? Uh Diet Coke or an iced okay. tea or something like that. Okay. Something unexciting. <laughs> it's exciting for you. There you go. Um, I did have a guy. He, he actually listens to this mm. occasionally. Larry. Shout out to Larry. His last meal would be salmon, mm-hmm. big old piece of salmon, mm-hmm. and a glass of milk. There you go. Glass of milk. Uh-huh. That's an interesting combination. Yeah. I like milk too, but I wouldn't love milk. Wouldn't necessarily have it with salmon. No, but for Larry, that's what there you works. Go. That's right. So that's all that's important. No discrimination. It's your it's your last meal. Okay. I like it. I forgot we were doing a podcast. That's how fun you are. And interesting. <laughs> You seriously, yes, this has been a lot of fun. Well, thank you. I've been I've enjoyed it. Well, thank you you're, for doing it. You're good at asking questions. <laughs> Phew, good. It's my job. I say I'm obnoxiously curious. So <laughs> I I appreciate you coming down and, and doing this with sure, me today. My pleasure. It's been fun. Well, if you're listening to this podcast on Apple's podcast app and you like it, please subscribe, rate, and review. It helps other people find us. We're also on Google Play, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Video portions can be found at YouTube on YouTube, I should say, and at KTVL.com. Just click on features and then off script. One more time, Mark Huddleston, former Jackson County District Attorney. I'm so glad you're enjoying retirement. Thank you so much, Trish. We are. Thank you.